Hey, Scott. Hey, Garrett. Remember that time I got in trouble for tweeting the Minnesota Orchestra? Which one? <laughs> well, we'll get into a little bit of that today. It feels it feels good to just go ahead and let all the tea out about some of my um, disappointments with our local orchestras. A little cathartic, is it? Yeah. How about we, how about we go ahead and get into it? I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, True and Real Stories from the Fringes of Classical Music. An excellent guest on this opus of Triloquy, Sam Bergman, violist with the Minnesota Orchestra. He really spills some tea for us and digs into some conversations that, honestly, I wasn't expecting a member of that ensemble to engage. So why I'm looking you, forward. Why do you think that is? I mean, I know that we get into it, but what's your what was your first thought as to why... Well, he got into it, whereas others didn't. You have to understand that um, APM and the Minnesota Orchestra sort of have a relationship, specifically um, Minnesota Public, you know, classical uh, Minnesota Public Radio with the live broadcasts of their big deal. of of their concerts and all that, you know. So, of course, folks get mad at me when I'm too critical uh, of the organization in a public way. Um, but Sam is is critical of the organization in in many ways himself. So I'm really thankful uh, and grateful to him uh, that he came in to engage some of the conversations about what organizations as big as the Minnesota Orchestra are doing to you know change the tides. Conversations they're having about uh, inner uh, leadership and and all that sort of stuff. So uh, yeah, it's going to be great. But um, but you've actually interviewed Sam before, I understand. Yeah, and he didn't even remember it. Oh, oh. <laughs> so that tells you anything about the program. Shade, shade. Now, I mean. there was this program that I was trying to launch called Behind the Music Stand, and the idea was that I was going to interview members of orchestras who weren't the principal mm-hmm. or who weren't the concert master. You know, and so the the conversation that we had circled largely around, you know, he's got a garden and he likes to cook and what bands was he listening to outside of classical music. So there was not much trill about it. Yeah, that was all. a colloquy, but this is triloquy. Uh, right. <laughs> right. That was a good that that's a good way to put it. Yeah. One of the things that he brought up that I think that anybody not in the orchestra world will find interesting is the talk about auditions and that. Um and I always forget about that. Yeah. yeah. Um because I come from a theater background and it would be so strange for me to audition for a show without being seen. Yeah. I mean, that's they want to see you and they want to see how you are going to interact with other people who might be on stage with you because that's going to give the best product. Yeah. And he says that, you know, the way he talks about it, that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, different orchestras do different things. Some orchestras keep the uh, keep the screen up the whole time. Most auditions I've taken, if not all, will have a piece of carpet on the stage so you can't even hear if it's a woman's uh, heels. Mm. I don't I don't know if I told this story on the podcast before, but I was studying um, music uh, professional, like how to brand yourself. I forget the name of the class that I took at USC, but that's where my website came from, GarrettMcQueen.com, you know, all about branding mm-hmm. yourself as a classical musician. Anyway, that teacher 
um, and I'm forgetting her name right now, but she uh, talked about how she was on an audition committee and it came down to two, uh, they were hiring a cello player and it came down to two uh, people, a man and a woman, and they ended up, and they took the curtain down and ended up uh, choosing the man. And um, the music director chose the man because ultimately the music director makes those decisions, especially mm-hmm. when it gets, you know, down to the nitty gritty. And uh, right there in the open, after the candidates had gone, you know, back backstage, someone said, so why did you choose uh, the man? Why did you choose such and such? And he said, my, my, my wife would kill me if I hired someone that attractive, you know, so you never know Dang. how little things can affect someone's livelihood. So that's wow. why that curtain um, is important. The curtain came down for me uh, in the in the finals, um, and I'll never forget. Uh, shout out to my homegirl um, uh, Ebony, who uh, she was a principal flute of the Knoxville Symphony uh, when I got there. She's playing down in Texas now, but and she's black. Um, and when I walked out on stage after the curtain was down, I'm looking out into the hall and I see all of these people whose faces I don't know. And then I saw Ebony's. Uh, I saw Ebony. Um, kind of smiling and nodding her head when she saw me come out. And I was like, okay, here we go. Mm-hmm. Um, and a- as I say, uh, when this uh, conversation uh, comes up and other things, I do panel discussions and all of that. Um, maybe they hired uh, with, uh, you know, diversity in mind. Maybe the best man won. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was both, yeah. you know. Um, but, yeah, there's, you know, a, a part of every bassoonist's um, experience is, you know, going out on that stage with a curtain up and playing this. And then in those... 12 or you know 17 seconds um your fate is sealed you know Light hangs in the balance and and of course that's not a tune by Rachmaninoff uh despite what people see in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is it that is it that movie yep. <laughs> it's the, <laughs> yeah the uh opening to uh the opening to the uh, Overture to the Marriage of Figaro by Mozart um anyway um but yeah uh Sam talks about um auditioning and some of the other uh inner things you know not just you know the flowery garden talk like y'all had even though that's important as well uh, also a bit about uh his upbringing how he uh, transitioned from violin to uh, viola. Yeah. Um, and then uh, at the end of this opus, uh, we're going to hear a piece of music he brought in, right? From uh, Judd Greenstein, who is, um, uh, I guess, the now ensemble still does play together, but the members are scattered mm-hmm. ar- around the country. But yeah, check out the now ensemble. Judd Greenstein is one of the founding members and a guitarist. And he incorporates electric guitar into the now ensemble's music in a really creative way. And he wrote a piece for a violist that is backed up by six other violas. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and Sam goes into the reason, uh, the how it was written and um, the performance that it was uh, meant to have, meaning there was, it was supposed to be a bunch of speakers scattered around yeah. the room. So. Yeah. For folks uh, who, who have never heard of Judd Greenstein or the Now Ensemble, is there a, a, a piece of music that comes to mind for you immediately that sort it's of called defines? Change. Is, yeah. It's called Change? There's a piece called Change. It How- sounds like this.
ensemble has uh, a, a lot of really good tracks. Yeah, but that, that's, that's fun. Change is a jumping off point that I think you'll enjoy. Yeah. Well, okay. So before we get into the conversation uh, with Mr. Sam Bergman, uh, one thing we kind of touched on in the conversation that I want to touch on here, we'll have to uh, find another time to get really more in depth with it, is the relationship between a principal voice and a non-principal voice. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is in orchestras, you know, every time you hear a uh, in your favorite piece of music, you hear a flute solo, you hear a beautiful bassoon solo or whatever, that's being uh, played by the principal musician in that section. The same that there are principal dancers in ballet, principal actors a lead. in yeah. theater, yeah, uh, uh, a lead. And sometimes, you know, the relationship uh, between the lead and the non-lead musically and otherwise can be a little tense. It has been for me um, over the years. And, and there's a very specific balance that you have to maintain, you know, shout out to Aaron Apaza. He plays with the North Carolina symphony now, but he was principal bassoon of the Knoxville symphony when I was down there. And, you know, sometimes when it came time to play that piece of music with the incredible solo right now, I'm thinking about the second movement of Tchaikovsky's fourth symphony. Mm -hmm. Um, it, It can, it can, I can feel a way because I feel like I could play it as beautifully or or whatever, but that's just not, you know, my role. What, what What's your experience with dealing with non-principal roles? Loads of it in theater. Yeah. I mean, not, not everybody can be a lead. Yeah. And I'm a co-founder of a theater group, and I wasn't always cast in the lead. Right. You know, and that's one of the things that we talked about with Sam because I can't imagine um, having to read lines when, and – and not being seen doing mm-hmm. it. But um, there is a quote that says there are no small roles, only small actors. Yeah. And that is crucial because the lead can't do the lead role without and do it well without the support of somebody who's only in a one scene or yeah. something like that. I was in um, a, a production where the, the review of my work was Blankenship does more with a few lines than some actors do with a whole script. You bodied it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, you know, and 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 I think that you can you can create something um, just as important as whatever the lead person is doing because they can't do it without you. And so right. that that's why everybody needs to be invested. I, there's there's no small roles. And something we when we were uh, kind of talking about this last night around my dinner table. Uh, sometimes those uh, smaller roles, those non-principal roles, can be what defines a mm. work of art. And, mm-hmm. the, and the example we had in mind was uh, the Queen of the Night from uh, Mozart, bringing Mozart uh, up again from Mozart's Magic Flute. Um, you know, when people think of that opera, they think of that character uh, and that really legendary aria. Absolutely. Even though in this multi-hour opera, the Queen of the Night has exactly three scenes. <sighs> one where she's telling, uh, I like the first aria better, actually, the, the, the one where, you know, she's uh, saying what has to go down and, you know, um, my 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 son, she's talking about Tamino, if you know the, the tale of the story, you know, where she's doing all these vocal acrobatics. And then later on, the second aria, the one, uh, that's really famous where she's uh, talking to her daughter about why she needs to kill this man that she's in love with and then in her third scene um, she's with her crew the the three ladies as they're known and and um, I'm forgetting the character's name right now. He's he's described by Mozart as a black character, actually. Mm. In that scene where the son comes out uh, 
uh, figuratively, you know, metaphorically, and mm-hmm. and the queen of the night and her minions are destroyed, you know. So mm-hmm. anyway, uh, a whole opera where this character shows up so few times, but um, it, it kind of defines the, the, the work of art. How, how about we listen to uh, a little bit of that famous aria to transition into our conversation with Sam? Sam Bergman, it is a pleasure to have you here on Triloquy. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. I'm a fan of the show. Oh, thank you. Well, uh, we have a lot uh, <laughs> to, to talk about today, um, all sorts of uh, dramas within and outside of your employer. But um, I wanted to start by going to your Twitter. So that's actually how um, I started to know who you were and uh and uh, some of the things that you believe in when it comes to classical music. Um, and I pulled this tweet of yours from uh, December. It's actually a poll that you took on Twitter. <laughs> and it says, what will ultimately be more irritating in the classical music world of 2020? 42% of uh, the folks who took this poll of yours said endless Beethoven is going to be irritating in uh, in 2020. And 578 uh, percent of the people who took your poll said endless bidding about endless Beethoven is going to be more annoying in 2020. Talk to me about that um, that sort of topic uh, as it applies to your job. Is that something that is, is going on a lot in the men work? And... Well, first of all, did you vote in this poll? Uh, I did not because Twitter Was gets me in cl- trouble often enough anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Was voting closed? Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, this is this is one of those things where I feel like sometimes um, – Music Twitter and the music world diverge mm-hmm. into two different universes, sure. right? Because 2020 is this this big uh, Beethoven anniversary year, um, 250th anniversary. And so, you know, every classical music institution and presenting organization is sort of falling all over themselves, either trying to just put as much Beethoven as possible on the schedule or to figure out a way to observe this anniversary without doing that. Mm -hmm. Because as has been pointed out, frankly, ad nauseum, uh, every year is a Beethoven celebration year in the world of big classical music institutions. Orchestras play his stuff every, I think it was Rob Deemer, the the musicologist and researcher uh, out of upstate New York, who, who put together a fantastic graph showing that one of the major reasons that we don't get a broader diversity of programming at orchestras is that a very small handful of composers are repeated a crazy number of times right. per season and right. that Beethoven leads the field. I think he showed, I'm going to get this wrong, but I, I think his graph showed that the number of works being played by composers from historically marginalized groups, so women, people of color, mm-hmm. all of that, um, was not quite equal to the number of works just of Beethoven's that were being played by the nation's large symphony orchestras, um, which is a crazy stat, you know, and and his point was not that we shouldn't be playing Beethoven. It was if you just knocked one off, if you went from playing three Beethoven symphonies a year to two or four to three, you've just opened up more slots that you could fill with someone else and you would still be playing Beethoven. You would still be selling those tickets. No one, 
I, I I don't know. Does anyone dislike Beethoven? I guess there are some people who at this point performatively dislike Beethoven. Right, exactly. And that goes to the poll that you talked about on Twitter. That was me being a jerk, basically. That, <laughs> because they at this, you know, you know the way Twitter is. If yeah. you're on Twitter, somebody makes a good point about something, someone else retweets that point, then a hundred thousand people retweet that point, right. and then everyone adds their own thing and all of a sudden, everything kind of flips, and the person and like the the good point being made is almost as irritating as the original thing it was pushing back. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's, it's the business model of the platform. It makes it thrive, and at some point, the anti Beethoven stuff becomes almost as performative as the Beethoven stuff. So right. that was the reason I put the poll up. It was just for fun. Um, <laughs> almost everyone took it that way inevitably you know on social media somebody's gonna not get that it's a joke and get bent out of shape that probably happened honestly it was more than a week ago so i don't remember but you're no stranger to uh, making people feel bent out of shape based on your social media wait what <laughs> and you know for and uh and scott you can speak to this you know and and so many of these uh you know professional jobs quote unquote you know you're supposed to keep your social media nice and squeaky clean and uncontroversial but mm -hmm. you you don't seem to have that concern at all, at least from my perspective. No, I do have that concern. Okay. I mean, I think I am. I speak freely on Twitter, and I'm very fortunate that I I'm in an employment situation where I, I am largely allowed to do that. I, I, mm -hmm. I nobody has ever called me in to talk about my Twitter. Um, Good for you. I, now, part of that <laughs> might be that just in the world of symphony orchestras, I. Th think that's much more of a Facebook world still. Okay. Um, so there are fewer orchestra musicians on Twitter. There are only a few of my colleagues in my orchestra who are also on there. And we do follow each other, but we leave each other alone, oh, largely. Nice. Um, but I think I am careful to not ever assume that I am empowered to speak for my orchestra because I'm not of course. in any way, whether it's on Twitter or here or anywhere else. Mm -hmm. I am one person out of 98 just among the musicians. And uh, it's absolutely not okay for me to, to act as if I speak for the Minnesota Orchestra. I don't any yeah. more than anyone else does. Um, I'm still going to ask you Minnesota Orchestra questions, though. Just fair warning. That's now. fine. <laughs> I am fully prepared to dodge them. It's going to be great. Uh, but, yeah, it's, you know, I, I speak freely about the classical music world generally and my role in it because that is a thing I'm empowered to speak about. You know, I've, I've been in this business for over two decades now. Mm -hmm. um, I'm extremely old and it I have, you know, I've seen a lot and I, I function both in the world of symphony orchestras, but also somewhat in the new music world. Um, mm -hmm. I have floated in the world of music journalism at times in my career. So I, I've had the benefit of getting to know a lot of different people with a lot of different perspectives. And that's what I like about music Twitter is that we can get to know people from a lot of different corners of the music world right. far more quickly than used to be possible. I have all of these Twitter friends mm -hmm. all over the world who do incredible things I would never have heard about right. but for that platform. So right. I really value it. I know Twitter can be awful and everybody delights in, in talking about what a cesspool it is, but there are some really good parts of it. And, yeah. and it's that discovery that I think is, is my favorite. There is there is some stuff that I wanted to ask you about on your Twitter that's not con that isn't controversial. What's a Mr. Big Bar? What? Oh, you, this you, is from yesterday, <laughs> right? So you had this picture of a whole cache of snacks. Yeah, a lot of it in French. Yes. So you drove to Canada 
Yes. Yesterday. For snacks. No. Okay. That's that's not what happened. I I crossed into Canada for snacks. I drove okay. to. So for those, for the I assume most of your listeners are not from Minnesota. Uh, everyone assumes that that Minneapolis St. Paul basically sits on the Canadian border. It yeah. absolutely does not. Right. The closest border crossing is a six hour drive almost. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to drive up to that border crossing yesterday to do an interview for the thing they call Global Entry. For you know, it's it's like international pre check basically. Um, they're hugely backed up. You would normally do it at your local airport. They have no openings. And I thought, you know, it's a beautiful drive up the North Shore. I'll just go up there and do it. And while I was there, I crossed over to Thunder Bay to pick up snacks for my Canadian friends mm. who work with me in the orchestra and who always want their favorite Canadian candy bars. You asked about Mr. Big. I have no idea what's in a Mr. Big because I have never had one. That is not one of Dang. my preferred Canadian. All right. It looks like it is a peanut caramel situation with chocolate, but not a Snickers. I don't know. All right. I'm I I was there note. for the all dressed chips and the Oka cheese. That was that's that's my jam. <laughs> okay, I'll have to check those out myself. I know about ketchup chips being a Canadian thing. But... Very much so. All dressed is like kick that up several notches. Okay. Just everything poured onto one Ruffles chip. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> um, so you you know you talked about these different worlds that uh, you've existed in under the giant umbrella of what we call classical music. Where did it all start? Talk to me a little bit uh, about. You know, young Sam and picking up the viola for the first time and and all of that. Sure. So I like a lot of string players. I started very young and I started on violin, which uh, a lot of violists do. Um, I my mother's version of this story is sort of the definitive one. And yet I don't trust it because (laughs) in her version of this story, I read an article in the Boston Globe when I was three. You did. I do not oh, find wow. this. I do not find this credible. <laughs> that that's not that's not the real origin story. <laughs> I think I saw a picture. Okay. I think I saw a picture of some Suzuki kids playing violins, mm-hmm. and I wanted to do that. And uh, my parents' position was, well, that sounds great, but last week you wanted to be a firefighter, so let's see how this plays <laughs> right. out. Right. And uh, they sort of let me fixate on it for a while, and eventually, for my fourth birthday, I got a you know tiny violin. Um, and they found me a teacher in our little town. We were living in Massachusetts at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they found me a Suzuki teacher who was this absolutely wonderful woman named Genevieve Osborne, just one of the kindest souls you would ever meet. Her prized possession was a picture on her piano of her with Dr. Suzuki himself, the inventor of the Suzuki method, in her backyard where she had convinced him to come and and see her class. And um, so I studied with her for a while, and I eventually was fortunate enough to catch on um, in the studio of Mary Lou Speaker Churchill, who was the principal second violin of the Boston Symphony, mm-hmm. and also this legendary violin teacher. I mean, when you talk to people from New England, people from Boston, she taught just an ungodly percentage mm-hmm. of the great violinists in that town. Um, just the kindest person, unfortunately passed away all too young, um, but left this amazing legacy behind. And uh, so I studied with her. And when I was nine years old. Who was she, by the way? Sorry? Who, who was she, by the way? Mary Lou Churchill. Mary Lou Churchill. Okay, I want to make sure I write her name down. Yes. So she, when I was nine years old... Um, I was her youngest and least advanced student. Okay. Uh, it was very Did that kind come from of, her? Or, or I, did you just feel that way? No, it was just true. Okay. I mean, it was most of her students were teenagers. She was very kind to take me when I was eight years old. Gotcha. I think she saw talent there, but it was certainly was very raw. It was very undeveloped. I was still, you know, 
making my way through the Suzuki books. It was she was very very kind to take me. Yeah. And when I was nine, she invited me to come out to Tanglewood, the Boston Symphony summer home in uh, rural Western Massachusetts, and spend a week just living with her, hmm. having lessons every day, going to closed rehearsals of the Boston Symphony, playing frisbee on the lawn at Tanglewood with the new young concertmaster of the Boston Symphony, Malcolm Lowe, who actually just retired. Um, and it was this really transformational experience. Uh, I think up to that point, I, I loved playing the violin. I had never thought of it as a job that people did, hmm. although okay. I, I guess I knew that it was. But sure. um, that was the first time that I thought, oh, yeah, I yeah, I would do this. This this seems great, you yeah. know. And and of course, viewed through the lens of the Boston Symphony, yeah, any music world job, great. that that sounds fantastic. Um, my family moved to Pennsylvania the next year, and so I had to to leave Mary Lou and and I had wonderful teachers in Philadelphia, the the De Pasquale brothers who were legendary members of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Um, but I really kind of hit the back burner with music at that point. I I was not super happy about having moved. Mm. Um, I think I was the definition of a petulant preteen. Yeah. Mom, get out of my room. All of oh, that. <laughs> it was, I th the fact that they put up with me at all is, is just a testament to good parenting. Well, but, shout out to them. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, but somewhere around this time, I also started to play viola mm. and that actually happened at a summer camp that I was going to in Western mass, uh, called Greenwood, which is, um, the nation's original chamber music camp. And it is this wonderful place that is, not at all the sort of prodigy factory that you sometimes think of when you think of music camps. Yeah. Um, it is very dedicated to the idea that the camp is there to provide kids with a growth experience tailored to them, that every kid should be able to have their own journey. Some of them are going to be professional musicians. Most aren't, but they're all great kids. And you, and you, you bring them together and you help them strive to sort of hit just above where their level was where when they came in, you know, because that's such a great way to to make kids feel like they've accomplished something. Um, and, and I was going to this camp. And this, I think this was sort of my parents' sop to me from the fact that we had moved, you know, okay. was, oh, you can go back to Massachusetts to go to summer camp. Right. Um, and I had a counselor one year when I was 11 who I did not like at all. Uh, and his name was Ken. And he did not like me. Uh, I think we were both right. Uh, and... I annoyed him night and day, and at some point he went to the director of the camp, and he said, this kid needs more to do hmm. because all he's doing is annoying me. Could you give him a second chamber group next week on viola? And she said, sure, we do that. And, and they came and asked me if I could read alto clef, the clef that viola reads in, and I had no idea what that was, so yeah. I said yes. Like you do. And that went very badly because they believed me and they put me in this group. And I literally was just guessing the notes all week. I sort of like had a vague sense of where things are. That's so what I, got... I do when I have to read alto cliff. So. Right? It's what everyone – it's like you know that middle C is the middle line of the staff yeah, and then you and just sort of – And after that, we'll see. Right. You guess from there. And so, you know, so it went very poorly. But I did like playing the viola. And if I'm totally honest, the, the main reason I said yes – is because there was only one kid in the camp that summer who was a full-time violist, and I had a crush on him. Oh, every time. That's and always the story. I somehow had it in my head that if I played viola, they were going to put me in orchestra next to Georgie. And then <laughs> I don't—I I was 11, so I don't think I probably thought through much past that. Okay. But I thought we would be stamping—and that's not at all what happened. Um but yeah, so I started playing viola, and the denouement to that story is that that counselor who was 
directly responsible for me starting to play viola. Mm-hmm. Ken. Ken. Uh, his last name is Freed. And he is also a violist in the Minnesota Orchestra. Oh, look at that. He beat me here by about a year and a half, and he was on my audition committee. Oh, wow. And the best part was he told me that after the audition, he called another guy, a friend of his, who had also been a counselor that summer, and said, Alan, um, Sam Bergman just won a job in my orchestra. And Alan said, Ken, I'm sure that the statute of limitations ran out a long time ago. <laughs> and I think you're going to be fine. Um, so, yeah, you know, the music world is so small. Oh, yeah, and we definitely all have those is. stories. Yeah, and, you know, uh, something that uh, a lot of folks, uh, even within this world of classical music, you know, just can't quite wrap their minds around is uh, the, the huge moment it is to win, not just win a job, but win a job in an orchestra as big as the Minnesota Orchestra. You know, when, when I won my job with the Knoxville Symphony, you know, years ago, I, I felt like I was on top of the world, like I had, you know, uh, managed the impossible. But even so, that was a position um, that, you know, couldn't pay me to, to live my entire life. But with the Minnesota Orchestra, you know, this, this that's, that's a highly, highly uh, coveted uh, position. Uh, do, you, do you see yourself uh, hanging on to that for the long haul, or, or is this just a, a period, or what? You know, what's funny about that, that feeling that you describe when you win an audition is, yeah, so I started out in the Alabama Symphony mm-hmm. in Birmingham. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So slightly larger organization than Knoxville, but not by so much. Right. And also at the time, the Alabama Symphony had just come back from not existing for five mm-hmm. years in the 90s. They literally went down um, and came back in 1997 as a whole new organization. And I joined a year later in 98, and I remember that feeling when I was told that I had won that job. And I remember the feeling when I won in Minnesota, and it was the same feeling. Yeah. It doesn't yeah, – it's absolutely. not better because it's a bigger job. You still have just that moment of, of incredulousness that they want you, right? And it's, it's such – and actually the only difference was in Alabama um, – actually in, in the case of both of the jobs that I've been fortunate to, to win, um, there were two jobs available – in the and Minnesota Orchestra. In the Minnesota Orchestra and also the Alabama Symphony when I auditioned. Oh. So two of us won at the same time, uh, which was great because then you're coming in with someone, yeah. right? You know, and, and in the case of Minnesota, um, it was a, an incredible violist named Kerry Ryan, who's now in the Philadelphia Orchestra. is one of my one of my best friends, just a great person. And in, in Birmingham, it was a woman named Ramona Merritt who uh, just – I could not have asked for a better colleague to come in with. She had a little more experience than me, but was also young. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she had the experience, which meant that I was the one who said the dumb thing at the audition because we were sitting in the room um, and they had they had eliminated enough people that there were only two of us left. And in my head, that meant we were getting the jobs. And I said that at some point when the the personnel manager had left the room, I sort of looked at Ramona and I said, so there's two jobs, right? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, so it's us, right? And she just looked at me like I was the dumbest thing alive and said, (laughs) they could hire neither of us. Right. And that's something else a lot of people don't know about orchestra auditions that you can you can send. The, I, I said, you know, I'm, I don't I'm, I won't shout them out. But one orchestra that I used to play with, a, a big, well-known orchestra, I would sit in on some of their auditions uh, sometimes. And, you know, we'd listen to 150, 200 musicians, literally that many. And at the end of three days, no one gets the job. Yeah. And, and mm. that was just the most 
ridiculous thing to me. It's a huge, huge problem yeah. in the industry, and it is discussed unceasingly. I mean, it's I, I think sometimes because orchestras are such clubby organizations and because there is so much secrecy around process. I think there's sometimes the perception that orchestras are just fine with the fact that no higher auditions happen. I, I know very few people who are fine with it. Yeah. I know even fewer people who have a solution for it. Mm. Um, a lot of people have things that they think will help. I have things I think would help, but it's a really imperfect process. Um, I think one of the real challenges of the audition process is um, to a large extent, we have made the process blind or at least partially blind by putting up screens between the people auditioning and the committee that's judging them. Um, usually the screen will come down at some point in most orchestras, mm -hmm. either for like a chamber music round or just because um, a lot of musicians really do feel very deeply that there are elements of playing that, that need to be assessed visually and you need to be able to see them. Um, other people think that's not the case. It's, it's very hotly debated. Yeah. Um, but when you make the audition blind, I, I have had there, there's there's a musician in my orchestra, a principal player who I respect very deeply, who feels passionately that audition committees behind a screen judge the candidates far more harshly and that they nitpick more and that they they don't think of them as humans. They think of them as just this collection just of sounds sound. coming at you. Yeah. And having been on committees that didn't use a screen and committees that do i actually think he's right about that personally i don't think that that rightness outweighs the benefit of the screen yeah which is in eliminating various levels of implicit bias or explicit bias um but I do think he has a really good point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, when I won my job in Knoxville, the curtain came down on the finals, and so so there could be a, you know, a play with the principal uh, sort of round, and that's what put me, uh, you know, head over, you know, ahead of everyone else was the synergy that I could immediately create with this person that I had uh, never met before. You know, it's it's really important. But, um, you know, so, something I want to jump to, uh, Scott, in the prelude, you know, we talk a lot about a relationship between a principal player and a non-principal player. And, uh, Sam, earlier, you know, you touched on the fact that winning an, audi uh, uh, winning an audition um, is a big moment, despite the orchestra and despite the position within that orchestra. So um, I'm curious if... Uh, once you got your job with the Minnesota Orchestra, you know, months, maybe even a, a year or so down the line, were there, were there these moments of, wow, this this isn't as magical as it seemed when I won this job, considering I don't get to play this or I'm, I'm uh, not in the spotlight for this? Because I think it's safe to say that when a musician wins an audition, that musician in their schooling and their training, they're usually close to the top of the pack. You know, uh, I was certainly a principal player um, primarily until I won my job as a second bassoonist. So that was, you know, an adjustment uh, for me. I, I guess that's my long way of asking, are there adjustments that you didn't quite see in the big exciting moment of having won this job with such an important, you know, American orchestra? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's there's always going to be adjustments, e even if even if you were the most eyes wide open musician in the world and mm -hmm. you came in with no false preconceptions about what the, the industry was, which most of us have at least a few. Yeah. Um, 
there's still going to be that period of adjustment because every orchestra plays differently. The Alabama Symphony plays differently than the Minnesota Orchestra mm-hmm. plays differently from the Cleveland Orchestra. Um, I I went to Oberlin and studied um, with, uh, among other people, Cleveland Orchestra musicians, right. um, as well as my main teacher. And the Cleveland Orchestra has an incredibly particular sound uh, and an incredibly particular style. And they teach that. And it is incredibly effective at winning auditions yeah. um, because they, they stress precision and they, they stress, you know, really precise dynamics and, and just sort of getting everything technically right, which that can be a real advantage in an audition because even though in the end, what's probably going to get you the job is your musical personality. Exactly. What's going to get you tossed out early is missing is, the be natural. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that, and this is one of the things we, when we were talking about, you know, the problems with auditions, this is one of the things we go back and forth on. And actually I've talked about this with my principal in Minnesota, Rebecca Albers. Um, she feels so strongly that the focus is too much on these little technical bits and pieces and that we sometimes miss the bigger picture of, you know, how someone creates a phrase or how they how they interpret a line and that we somehow need to find a way to put more of the focus on that and less of the focus on did they snap that rhythm exactly, precisely, metronomically correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the moment, if you're sitting on that audition committee and you're listening to someone play those excerpts, and someone biffs the same rhythm five times in a row. Right. In the back of your head, you're going, I don't know if I want to sit next to that for the next 20 years. Right. right. But maybe we shouldn't be saying that, you know, because there's always something, right? No matter who you're working with, if you're sitting shoulder to shoulder, it's a job. There's going to be something about that other person that irritates you and something about you that irritates them. And that's life. Who's That's, your staying partner again? Uh, we <laughs> rotate. We rotate. So we we rotate the irritation. Okay. From we to, no, it, but like you're always going to have that. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's part of being an adult. You know, it's not music camp. It's not, you know, your group lessons as a kid. This is your job. Mm-hmm. And part of your job is getting along with your coworkers and working together and acknowledging that none of you are perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah. There are. I'm. And one of the you asked about adjustments when I got in the orchestra. One of the biggest adjustments I had to make is that I was trained in this Cleveland Orchestra style. Um, I love the Cleveland Orchestra. I, if you asked me hand to heart, what's the best orchestra in America? I would probably say the Cleveland Orchestra. I adore them. The Minnesota Orchestra plays with just the house opposite style of Cleveland. And that was a really rough adjustment for me. Mm. Not that I didn't want to make the adjustment. It's not that I was against adjusting. It was that I literally could not figure out how to do it for the longest time. It involved I, I had never before been told that I wasn't loud enough. I had always oh, wow. been a pretty loud player as a violist, I thought. And I got here and I felt like I was constantly being told no one could hear me. And that was baffling to me. And it, and it's one of those things where it really requires somebody else to sort of cut through your own BS in your head mm-hmm. and point out to you the obvious, which is, so play louder. Yeah. You know, yeah. I spent all this time dithering over, you know, well, I, I mean, is, Do I need it, is a it my bow? Or, right. Yeah. Is yeah. it my bow stroke? Is my instrument bad? Am I not? It's like, just play louder, but otherwise the same. Mm-hmm. 
you know, because these we get in our own heads as musicians about our shortcomings. And I had so many shortcomings. I was incredibly lucky that I, I won my job in Alabama at 22. I won my job in Minnesota just before I turned 24. Oh, wow. And that's that's an accomplishment. Yeah. You can say that. But the downside of it is I was still such an incomplete player. Mm. You know, they, they obviously saw something they liked and I'll be forever grateful for that. But I felt so out of my depth, you know, not so much with colleagues because everyone it, it's an, it, Minnesota is a really supportive orchestra by and large, you know, the the people are really great about sort of treating it like it's a family and, and trying to be supportive of each other. Um, but I could feel where I was falling short. Yeah. And I, I really agonized over it to frankly a ridiculous extent. I mean, in a way that had I, had I gotten the job in my thirties, I might've had a little more, you know, just a little more common sense. Yeah. Yeah. But as it was, everything felt like a crisis for that first year and a half, two years. Sure. Sure. I think the, uh, we've been talking about imposter syndrome lately. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, or Dunning Kruger. And the Dunning Kruger effect. Do you know the Dunning Kruger effect? I love the Dunning Kruger effect. Okay. So that's something that, um, I think everybody chews on, uh, at some point in time in their career or another. And I think that it's amazing that it happens so much in classical music that you never see it. Everything from the composers who are, you know, they have this incredible piece of music and they're going, oh, I don't know if they're going to like this part about it. And, uh, and, and, and to hear that the musicians are going through it too, to me, that's sort of, I feel a little vindicated. Mm-hmm. Well, like, and, how, and how could you not? Because if you look at the, the central ridiculousness of this profession is that it is entirely subjective, right? Because it's music. Music is subjective. It's highly personal. There, there is no, you know, this is 100% correct. This is 100% incorrect. That's not how it works. And yet we judge it as if it is objective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we do that in competitions, we do that in auditions, we do that when we listen to music and recordings, we go on social media and we make blanket statements about artists who we've decided we do or we don't like and we we say these things as if our opinions are somehow fact-based when they are not at all. And when you decide to work in that world, that contradiction is going to get you right. at some level. You know, you, some people handle it better than others. Some people handle it by never acknowledging that there's a contradiction. Some people <laughs> coast through their entire careers acting as if we can say that these things are objective. But then, you know, the deeper you get into, say, the planning and the programming side of things, you start to have a responsibility to yeah. acknowledge that contradiction because it's that sort of treating the subjective as objective that leads to things like how narrow the canon has become and leads to the exclusion of certain composers and leads to the exclusion of musicians and leads to generations of male musicians claiming that women can't do the job and leads to all manner of racism and any number of other things. And most of that comes out of people stating subjective opinions as fact. And it's interesting that you're bringing this up because as I was going through your Twitter, um, I also saw you kind of having a back and forth with someone about classical music being the greatest music ever made or, or whatever. And and how, you know, uh, again, how objective, how objectivity is placed on classical music inappropriately, you know, making assumptions about it, um, as you've said, that, that lead to, to certain things 
that sort of cloud the art form, including, you know, how people even feel uh, going to a concert. So mm. um, two folks who um, have uh, uh, been on Triloquy uh, so far, um, you know, so I, I posted a, a something on Instagram about, oh, I'm going to hear the Minnesota Orchestra. I was invited um, by uh, Afa uh, Dworkin when, when when you guys did the uh, American Rhapsody yes. music of uh, Samuel Coleridge Taylor with words of George Washington overlaid. And that was, and that was put together by Aaron Dworkin, who yeah. runs the Sphinx organization and, and Afa, his wife. Right. Right, yeah. yeah. Which you know, Scott, we'll talk about that piece of music later uh, because I, I had some issues there. But anyway, when I posted that to Instagram, you know, I, I'm I'm here seeing the Minnesota Orchestra. Uh, these two people, um, who I, who I won't name, you know, for for now, um, just. Uh, were in my DMs about how could you do that? How could how could you go hear that orchestra? They don't uh, they don't care about us, what we're doing about um, uh, about changing things, um, and you know it's it's difficult for me to uh, hear that from people who you know aren't really in the field because as many problems as I have with big organizations like the Minnesota Orchestra, at the end of the day, I think we're here, Scott. You know to. Uh, remind people that classical music is something that they can engage in and mm-hmm. is something that can be interesting. But again, there's just there's just this whole cloud around it, and specifically the Minnesota Orchestra, unfortunately. Uh, in what ways uh, do you think, you know, as someone who is a not a principal player, not the conductor, not you know leading one of the administration offices or something? And what ways do you work to sort of uh, change that uh, per- perception and to remind folks that you know what the Minnesota Orchestra does can apply to just about anyone's life and experiences? Well, I I mean I think part of it is not going into any interaction with the attitude that we can apply to everyone's experiences as we currently exist. That's interesting. Because it, orchestras are big institutions, right? Big broad-based organizations, multi-million dollar organizations. And I sometimes think that the the sheer size of Well, not all, but certainly the Minnesota Orchestra. But many. And even a small professional orchestra that that operates at anything approaching full-time is going to be a multi-million dollar like just by nature of the number of people you have to pay Mm -hmm. and i i sometimes think that there's there's a perception that because these orchestras have large budgets that means they have you know stacks of money sitting around in coffee cans and it's usually the opposite of that it's just there are so many people involved and you have to pay them all and that's why the budget's big sure um but because they're large Orchestras get tagged as somehow these universal arts organizations. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in America particularly, there has been a tendency for the people who work in orchestras to drink that particular Kool-Aid, to to assume that because we came up in these musical traditions and we love this music, this core, the, the Brahms, the Beethoven, the Mozart, whatever, that A, that's the limit of our responsibility as musicians and Mm. artists, is to play that music, Mm -hmm. and B, that anyone in the world, regardless of where they grew up or what they grew up listening to, should be able to listen to this and love it as we do and Mm -hmm. appreciate it. And we build up all these myths about the the effect that this music can have on children and the, you know, and and some of it is, is not entirely myth. Some of it is based on, you know, some stuff about Kids who grow up listening to music generally, you know, there can be some effects on on how they do with other kinds of learning, um, especially if they grow up learning music and studying sure. music. Um, but we twist these things into 
self-beneficial frames, right? We, we say that because this is what I do for a living and this is what I care about and what I'm passionate about, therefore it must be universal. And it's not. Nothing is universal. And if we want to attract more people to what we do, it stands to reason that the answer is to broaden what we do, not to expect mm-hmm. other people to fit themselves into our, you know, square peg round hole. It, and, and so I think you, you asked what I can do as, mm-hmm. a, as a non-principled player. What are you doing even? You know, one of the great things about the way that orchestras run in America is that they are very much these big, messy organizations full of committees. And this varies a lot from ensemble to ensemble. There are ensembles that are extremely top-down, where the management runs things, the musicians might have a few committees that make sure the contract's followed, but otherwise it's just very separate. The Minnesota Orchestra, um, for at least the last almost decade, has functioned very differently. We went through a very traumatic uh, lockout uh, from 2012 to 2014, um, and... At the end of that, it it very nearly destroyed the organization. And at the end of it, um, we really had to rebuild from scratch. And the easiest thing to surmise coming out of that lockout was that um, the organization had been siloed. It had happened deliberately. It had had happened for power structure reasons, and that had to be broken down. And in the course of breaking down those silos – What we created was an immensely collaborative model, which is in itself super messy. I mean, I don't want to act like, you know, we created some grand structure that that would work for, you know, every other orchestra. It is real messy if you have an organization of a couple hundred people and you suddenly tell them all that they're all equally important in the planning process. But it does lead to a situation where a lot of voices get heard. And we have continued with a lot of the elements of that messy but open planning process. And so for a musician like me, there are opportunities for me to sit on committees that ask difficult questions about what we're playing and why we're playing it. And for me to make a, you know, a forward looking case for what we ought to be doing in the coming years. Um, I I actually want to ask you, so you, you talked about the American Rhapsody concert that Mm -hmm. we did. Um, I have the feeling I know some of what your mixed emotions were about it, but this this was some. I was not involved in the planning of this, but I did play in it. Um, so Aaron Dworkin, obviously hugely respected, you know, oh, figure yeah. in classical music, who who founded the Sphinx organization. Off of his wife works with him running yep. it, um, and he created this this piece, this mashup basically of the music of Samuel Coleridge Taylor. Um, fantastic piece um, with words, largely the words of George Washington, but also Aaron's own words. Yeah. Um, but they were the words of George Washington. Yeah. I'm yeah. guessing that was probably the first thing that rubbed you the wrong way. It felt. Uh, did, did we talk about this at all, Scott? You and I did a little bit. Yeah. You know, it's it was just the feeling of um, forcing the audience I, I felt like as an audience member i was supposed to walk away forgiving george for i was supposed to walk away uh forgiving george washington for his proximity uh to american slavery mm. i felt like that is what the minnesota orchestra was asking me to do and it it definitely upset me i didn't even stay past intermission even though that you know one of my favorite composers is shostakovich and there was shostakovich on that concert that i did not stay for because i was that upset mm-hmm. and then when you mix that with what to me looked like the tokenization of black children on stage mm. it just for me it it dug that 
trench um, even deeper because I should be one of the people uh, going to the concerts. I have a connection, uh, professional and personally, uh, with classical music. But what? So my question was. What do concerts like that say to the person who doesn't have to have a reason to appreciate classical music? That, that, that was really my bone to pick with the organization in that moment. How is this broadening the audience? And also wondering about the people in the audience, what they actually walked away with. Right. Did they get the point that you're talking about? Or did they walk away feeling like, oh, okay, so now all of a sudden I'm supposed to uh, feel better about George Washington. And the same people giving that piece of music a standing ovation at the end were the same folks side-eyeing what I had chosen to wear to the concert, which was not a blazer and slacks. It was jean sneakers and a Black Lives Matter t-shirt, you mm-hmm. know. So that, so that whole, you know, and, and getting back to the triloquy guests who were in my DMs about, you know, how could you support the, the Minnesota Orchestra? It's, it's, little, it's little things like that that, uh, from my perspective, just, uh, again, dig that uh, trench deeper. And I'm, and, you know, and I'm not here to, you know, to, to slam on the Minnesota Orchestra, but, I mean, you ask the question. You know, yeah. So that's that's how I felt walking away from that concert. No, and, and I asked the question because I think it's hugely important when large institutions like the orchestra have something that, you know, that that people perceive as a misfire. Mm-hmm. We absolutely have to be called out on that. And what's what's interesting about this particular example, I think, is um, that it was actually conceived as something that was supposed to have the opposite effect. Right. It was yeah. it was supposed to be a celebration of black lives. It was supposed to be, you know, here, here was a piece that was literally created by, you know, a man of mixed race and, and created to celebrate the music of a, uh, of a black composer, Samuel Coleridge Taylor, not African-American. He was English. Um, Afro-English. There you are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and yet you are not the only person that I have heard this from about that concert. And, and, I th- and, and also, I'm, I'm very curious, too. You talked about what you perceived as, as being the tokenization of black kids on stage. Mm-hmm. And I happen to know that, that the people who planned the concert, the reason they wanted those kids there is because they wanted there to be input from these kids. Uh, the, the, these were kids from a, a high school on the north side of Minneapolis mm-hmm. that we have a partnership with. Um, and, and the idea was for them to take these words of George Washington and create a reaction to it of their own. And then to perform that on stage alongside our performance of this piece. And I don't know I, I'm I'm hesitating because I don't want to say it was a presentation problem because I I feel like that's minimizing mm-hmm. the issue. But I do wonder if there if there had been a way for us to make more clear that what these kids were there to do was to present a counterpoint. Sure. Um, which on the other hand, I you know you don't you don't want to disrespect the creator of of the other piece. Of course. Um, but maybe, yeah, I, I mean, the fact that you're not the first person I've heard this from means that we don't get to dismiss, you know, that we don't get to dismiss this yeah. kind of complaint. You know, this is this was a thing that I think people thought was going to be very celebratory and that it was going to be a very positive thing. And I think for some people it was, yeah. but for other people it was not. And we have to take that into account. I think classical music has a tendency to say, well, we're never going to please everyone. 
And that may be true, but that doesn't mean that you don't internalize and, and you don't react to the criticism in a positive way. And, and I do think that one of the things, you know, at the risk of at the risk of blowing smoke up my own employer, I would say we have some people in the very highest levels of the orchestra at this point who absolutely get that and who take it very seriously. Yeah. Um, we have had more conversations in the wake of that concert than about just about any previous concert I can imagine because people genuinely do want to understand when we've put a foot wrong. And mm-hmm. and that's that's encouraging for me to hear because if I may keep it extra trill, a, a little birdie told me that that concert was plan B anyway, that there was a tour planned that that didn't work out or fell through. So they're like, oh, well, let's just do this concert instead. Maybe maybe that's just hearsay from the, you know, from the folks I hang out with. But that's also something I understood about that concert, that it wasn't originally planned. It was just the reaction to this thing didn't work out. So let's I, do this. I, I, I would push back on that just a little bit in this sense that it in the planning process of any season there are always things that get planned and then for whatever reason don't come to fruition mm-hmm. and then you move other things around okay so i would not necessarily say that it's a concert that wouldn't have happened otherwise it's just it's that's where it wound it, it is true that there was a planned tour that that wound up not coming to fruition for just logistical reasons mm-hmm. and so that's where that got slotted in but i I would not necessarily extrapolate that to it wouldn't have happened otherwise. Yeah. You talk about the people that are higher up in the organization that are very concerned about these sort of issues and they're thinking about it uh, purposefully. Uh, One of the past uh, opuses of this podcast, we featured Nabal Mesud. Mm -hmm. and He wrote uh, that article. Right. Having people of color in positions to be able to make these choices – is that happening? Is is the no. management in the upper echelons of this organization becoming more diverse? Um, well, it depends what you call upper echelons. Is the upper management okay, so becoming what, what, what more, more racially? Can, what you consider to be the upper echelon then? Well, so there's multiple levels of leadership at, at an orchestra, right? There's the board, which, which technically is the highest level of leadership, but right. it's more an oversight thing. Um, our board has been adding more board members of color okay. over the last several years. Now, is it anywhere close to where it should be yet? No. You know, and this is, I mean, this is, I feel like a hugely important thing when we talk about race and classical music is we, we are constantly asking to be congratulated for the very smallest steps. Right. And that it, it's got to stop. It, it's not, you don't get to take a step that the rest of the world took 50 years ago and then expect to have your hand shaken for Right. It. I don't care what you have planned for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Exactly. I, I want to see that work in April exactly. and in December, and, you know. Yes. Right. And, and just, you know, it's if you're doing it for PR reasons, you might as well not be doing it. Mm-hmm. Right. That's not so. So in a, all of that is to say nothing's where it needs to be. But. Our board has been making an effort to recruit and bring on board more board members of color. Um, Is our management still entirely white? Yes, it is. 
is the is our orchestra still overwhelmingly white? Yes, it is. Even by the standards of American orchestras, we actually have, uh, I'm pretty sure, a lower percentage of Asian American musicians and Asian musicians from other countries than a lot of orchestras. And, and we have a lot of discussions about why that is. Anecdotally, it seems as if we get fewer Asian musicians at our auditions than some of the big coastal orchestras. Mm-hmm. Some of that may just be an element of, you know, if, if you move to this country and you move straight to New York or L.A., you may that's be where you loathed, set up shop or, or you may just be loath to take an audition in the midwest mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. in an area of the country that is overwhelmingly more white outside you know chicago right um and certain other cities um so yeah it's we are not anywhere close to where we want to be but where we want to be is one of those open discussions right and and y- you so quickly get into the realm where everyone is sort of notionally on the side mm-hmm. of broadening who we are and what we do, but then specific steps rub people the wrong way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and then you have to get into those very uncomfortable places of why does this make me uncomfortable? Why do I feel as if this is not what we should be doing? And, and you really wind up, if, if you're honest about the process as a white person, you have got to do a lot of self-interrogation. Yeah. You have to really query why you believe the things that you believe. You mentioned a while ago during this conversation about, you know, classical music constantly referring to itself as the greatest. Right. And this is a thing that I was speaking with someone on Twitter about this week. And it's such an odd thing because who told you that? Where, at what point in your life did you decide that it's that not just that it's great, not just that you love it, the greatest. Where did that come from? What what's your evidence? Have you bothered to acquire any or is it? No, you haven't. It's just someone told you this is the greatest that made you feel good because you liked it. And so you say that because it feels harmless to you. Yeah. But if you're someone from outside that club and you view classical music as this very exclusive thing that is not for you and they're standing there on their hill that they built telling you that theirs is the greatest and whatever you listen to is lesser. Mm hmm. What kind of recruiting tactic is this? Yeah, yeah. It's utterly bizarre. You know, it's what, yes, everybody uses superlatives when they talk about music. People who love Beyonce will talk about Beyonce as the greatest of all time. Well, she is, but I mean, it's hard to argue it. Yeah. (laughs) But they're generally not going to try to recruit you. To that, I never know. Is it Bayhive or Beehive? Oh, uh, it's the Beehive. Okay, it's the Beehive. Very much. They're not going to try to recruit you to and the Beehive. Gonna find, and they're going to find you on tri- uh, on uh, Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm you not might worth, have some bee emojis in your. Uh... I'm not worth their time. But no, they're but they're not going to try to recruit you to the Beehive by talking smack about some other artist. They're going to talk the time, about, but yeah, but I, but I definitely get you what know you're what saying. I mean. Yeah, yeah you yeah. know, it's it's not, and this is this is a real problem in classical music because when you even talk to musicians about the need to stop using that kind of language, what you get back is what I got back on Twitter the other day from someone who is quite successful in the field and honestly should know better, which was somebody saying, "Well, how are we supposed to sell the music by saying it's not great?" And it's like, well, that's not what I said at all. Yeah. I said, stop saying it's the greatest. The greatest. Right. Yeah. Stop right. setting it up as above everything else when you have no evidence to back that up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something similar happens in the theater realm. Everybody's Shakespeare's the gold standard, right? You know, is uh, Shakespeare uh, the gold standard? By some people's definition, it's very fine. You know, to to be able to be Macbeth. 
right. be cast in Macbeth would be like getting concert master of the concertgebouw. Right, or, or, or playing yeah. one of our, you know, favorite excerpts, you know, as a bassoonist sure. getting to play Shostakovich 9, you know, and, and exactly. all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, we, we've, we're, we're running a, a little long. This conversation is really good, but I, I Sam, I can't let you go uh, without bringing this up. So... Um, in orchestras, there's something called uh, tenure. So after, you know, and, and it depends on the orchestra, after a certain amount of time or whatever, you know, you have that job, that position is yours, and if they want to get rid of you, you know, there, there are certain hoops that have to be jumped through, and, you know, it's usually more difficult uh, uh, as a way of, you know, protecting the, the employee, the musician. Mm -hmm. um, last year, I spoke with two uh, Minnesota orchestra musicians who do not have tenure, and they weren't comfor comfortable being on Triloquy without tenure. So um, without me making any assumptions, with, with, without me throwing any shade or anything, um, I just want to know, Sam, from your uh, perspective, is speaking freely on subjects like these, even if they critique the Minnesota orchestra itself, something that's not really... Um, celebrate it within the organization. Why do you? I, I can't ask you to tell me why they didn't want to be on. But does does it make sense to you that two non tenured Minnesota orchestra musicians would feel nervous about being on a podcast like this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, just because. So the the way tenure works in symphony orchestras in in America, anyway. Um, like you said, for the first generally year to two years, you're on probation. Right. Um, which basically means you are no, not yeah. you are not guaranteed employment beyond that right. at all. You can be dismissed after a year. You can be dismissed after, after two years. And for basically no reason. I mean, it's all laid out in the contract. I mean, they'll they'll give you a reason, but that's mm -hmm. not, you know, you have no recourse. You're, you've signed on to a contract that says, I am going to be judged for everything I do for the first two years. Um, and when you are in that process, you naturally assume that means everything mm -hmm. that means you tick off one person even mm. if they're not on your audition committee or your tenure committee or whatever in your mind that could affect your ability to stay in this job and it's a good job and you want to keep it so yes that's absolutely a natural reaction i know of no situation in my orchestra in which anyone has been disciplined for talking um let alone when they were, you know, on, actually, you know what, that's not true. There was a period under a much darker administration just before our lockout where, where I do know of a situation where one of our principal players was hauled in over a, a totally innocuous quote to the press, but that it was shocking when it happened because that, that was such an unheard of thing. Mm. Um, so maybe the culture of, of that fear is industry-wide and not just Oh, a Minnesota so. orchestra issue. Oh, mm. oh, for sure. I mean, anytime you're on probation, your number one priority is going to be, you know, nose to the grindstone, do your job, react to the criticism that you get, do your best to correct whatever you're told to correct. And at the end of that, hopefully, you know, you will get tenure. And it's not that you can't be fired with, with tenure. You absolutely can. Sure. It just, as you said, it, it takes a little longer and there's a process mm -hmm. and you have some rights. Right, right. Um, which is, you know, not that different from a lot of other union contracts. It's a union job. The union's job is to protect its members. And part of that is having these things in place that says, you know, it, I think it comes out of the old tradition from, you know, the mid 20th century when music directors in America were given just carte blanche to do whatever they wanted. They could replace half the orchestra if they wanted to. Um, musicians weren't real happy with that. And so now it's it's swung in a different direction. Yeah. Well, Scott, I feel like we got 
a pretty honest, in-depth look into you know the organization more so than I thought. I think so. <laughs> and I'm I'm curious about your opinion on where it's going. Do you see diversity? Do you, do you see more um, diversity happening? The effort is is at least the effort there past the concert that you talked about with the Washington piece? and more and more than just diversity. Because that's becoming one of those, um, you know, words you can tick off to to get a pat on the back. So, so more than just diversity is important, sure. But, uh, you know, where do you see it going as far as uh, community relevance and and right. an organization like the Minnesota Orchestra being an institution of the community that it exists in and not just, again, this thing that sits on the hill that, you know, people with enough money and, and with a shirt and tie can go uh, participate mm-hmm. with. Yeah, I, I think I, I think as an industry, we are at a real crossroads with this right now. And, and just to be brutally honest about it, nothing changes in an industry as broad as symphony orchestras without there being a change in priorities and the change in priorities in this field historically has been has come about like the change has come about when the funding community changes its priorities so in the late 1960s and the 1970s the ford foundation came in and started pouring money into american symphony orchestras for a mm-hmm. variety of reasons that made orchestras even more than they had already been sort of the center of the classical music world. Yeah. They pulled out at some point. Other things replaced it. Other priorities came along. When I first joined the industry, you couldn't get a grant for anything in this business unless it had an education component. That was just that was the big buzzword of the time that we were going to lose audience if we didn't bring kids into the fold. We everything had to have an education component or it wouldn't get funded. These days there is a priority in the funding community in the arts for things to get, and I'll just put it the most crass possible way, less white. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is obviously the funding community is not for the first time, but to an, um, a greater extent, funding arts initiatives that are organized and run by people of color. But they would also like the legacy arts organizations to participate in this evolution and to be, as you said, not just more diverse, but more equitable and to actually do more than pay lip service. We are at the beginning of this mm-hmm. as as a, an industry, um, which is not to say there aren't people working very hard on it. There are both in my organization and across the country. There are. But w- the way I tend to describe it to people is if you've ever lived in a city like Minneapolis-St. Paul, or, you know, smaller cities around the country, if you've ever tried to have a municipal conversation about public transit, it often has to start from the level of should we have some of that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Chicago or New York, that is not where the conversation yeah. begins. Yeah. The conversation begins there with, oh, my God, how do we fix it? Yeah. You know, and so it's a whole different kind. And and I feel like sometimes our industry starts from should we have some of that? Yeah. Where that puts us behind everyone else's curve. But that's important work to do, you know, in in a community like Minnesota, which is largely white, Minneapolis itself less so. But still, as big cities go, Minneapolis is still, I believe, 55 percent white. Mm. Um those of us who are white in this profession have a lot of work to do in educating each other and educating our 
leaders sometimes, but also educating our audience and not expecting that musicians of color are going to swoop in and do all this work right. for us. And then for me, the next step, you know, when it comes to white folks uh, educate, educating each other and having that conversation, you also have to talk about seceding power. Because, again, we're talking about people of color, people from marginalized communities in leadership positions. Having Scott, to say. Scott, yeah. we've been talking, you know, we've been centering the Minnesota Orchestra in this conversation. But but even um, with, with our organization, those are conversations that are happening. Mm -hmm. And most of our leadership roles are... Uh, aren't filled by uh, people of color. So, you know, so it, it's something that's happening everywhere. And, yeah. and just as, you know, just as people can uh, uh, have preconceived notions about an orchestra like the Minnesota Orchestra, the same with organizations like ours. So, you know, it, it's, it's all, all of our charge to really, uh, you know... Well, and, do that, the work. and that conversation about leadership and power is so hugely important because it goes I, I feel like that is a, a wedge that you can drive into the orchestra mm -hmm. world where you can point out, you know, the the one, you know, uh, the one non-white racial group that is quite heavily represented in classical music is Asians, right. Asian Americans. And um, yet I, I have a good friend who's a, a very prominent uh, Korean American violinist who has who will point out till she's blue in the face. Show me the Asian American leaders. Mm. Mm -hmm. Show me the orchestra that is run by an Asian. You can't. It's a, there. There is this notion of just how far we're willing to let people progress, and it's it's the history of the way that racism works in this country. That you know, the small bits are handed out, and then you know, the the white hand that handed them out expects to be thanked. Mm -hmm. And you know, if Ooh, you yes. if you if you look, that, yeah. you know, I I feel like if if you look at at the history of the arts in this country, there is there is that sense of you know, you're only allowed to progress so far, and it it even goes beyond race. One of my favorite ever articles about classical music is this Time Magazine article from 1968 that got republished about a decade ago. And um, it was about this phenomenal new trend of ladies in symphony orchestras. And you can tell from the way this article was written that every man involved, and, and of course it was written by a man, mm -hmm. it quotes almost exclusively men, they all thought they were being the height of progressive. Yeah, woke. Mm. Oh, yeah. they were so pleased with themselves about the fact that now there are women in classical music, and yet in the first two paragraphs, they're describing a woman in the New York Philharmonic as being as curvy as the bass Ooh. she plays. Good grief. She's still in the New York Philharmonic, by the way. She's absolutely badass. And the best quote in that article is from the music director of the L.A. Philharmonic, a very prominent conductor to this day, who has this amazing quote where he says, well, of course we hire women. My God, it is 1968. Of course we do. Of course, I do cap it at 16 and no title chairs because, you know, you don't want to ruffle mm -hmm. feathers. Mm. And that's that power thing. Yeah. You know, that like, well, of course we have them. But, oh, no, you can't. My God, can you imagine if you had a woman at Concertmaster? Right, right. Goodness gracious. Reminds me of what uh, Pocahontas' dad told uh, the members of his nation. Um, but anyway, <laughs> um, so, so Sam, what, uh, how, how can, you know, we've talked about your Twitter and all that. So uh, how about you tell folks how they can follow you on Twitter and keep up with your Internet escapades? Uh, I'm Viola <laughs> North on Twitter. Um, I, I guarantee you it is far more boring than Gareth. Uh, then Garrett made it sound. Um, also, I apologize. There will be hockey tweets. That's that's just the nature of the beast. And sure. international snacks.
weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Very occasionally. Um, yeah, so you can follow me there. Uh, I also, if you're in Minneapolis-St. Paul, I'm uh, the co-curator of a, a small uh, performance series called Outpost Words and Music, uh, and you can find that at Outpost, M-U-S-M-N, on Twitter, uh, I think also on Facebook. Um, yeah, and I just do whole lot of stuff around town so you know if you're ever uh if you're ever in the orbit come say hi and if someone's listening right now who who lives in the twin cities or minnesota and uh they feel like a minnesota orchestra concert is is not for them what would what would you say to convince them to come give it a try to come see one of your shows i would say that we play about a dozen different kinds of concerts and i'll bet one of them might be for you, and if none of them are, we need to hear about it. Mm. Because if we're not doing something for you, then we are failing and in who, that way. And who can they contact with that sort of feedback? We actually have a number of—you can go through the website. You can, you're can. you welcome to just tweet directly at me, and I promise that I will take it to the very highest levels. Um, if there are things that we're doing that just seem wrong to you, like the concert Garrett's talking about, we want to hear about that. Like, it, it, there is no one over there— who doesn't want to hear when we've put a foot wrong. Mm. But we also want to hear about the stuff that we're doing that people are engaging with and do like and do want to see more of because sometimes it's hard to gauge without getting real invasive with audience members. You know, we want to hear about it when it meant something to you. Um, So, yeah, check out check out what's on the schedule at your local orchestra because it may be more than you think it is. I think we have this notion that orchestras do exactly one thing or maybe they do two things. They do the classical concerts and the pop shows. It's way more than that at this point. So, you know, look around, see if there's anything for you. And if there's not, demand that there be. By and large, orchestras tend to be the largest arts organizations in their town by budget Mm. in most cities. That means there's a responsibility to be responsive to everyone in that town. It doesn't mean they can ever be all things to all people. No one can be, but we should at least be trying to serve the community that on whose backs we exist. Exactly. Agreed. Exactly. Wow. Well, Sam, thank you so much for being on this opus of Triloquy. Um, you, we're, we're going to have a little role reversal here. So you brought um, you brought in a piece of music uh, for us to hear. So how about you uh, act like you're doing our jobs as radio announcers and uh, and tell folks what they're about to hear. Absolutely. So uh, one of my passions is is new music, living composers. I, I play as much of it as I can. And one composer who I've had an ongoing uh, professional relationship with for coming up on a decade now uh, is Judd Greenstein, who is this this tremendous composer and musical entrepreneur originally from New York City. These days he lives in the hills of western Massachusetts, uh, and he and his wife, uh, Michi Wianco, have created this amazing farm-slash-artist retreat where they they put on concerts all summer and, and they bring people out to just sort of bask in the quiet and and do their work. Um, and he is also one of the founders of New Amsterdam Records, which is this record label that has, has really done, gone a long way towards rejuvenating the new music scene in New York and really nationwide. They put out an ungodly number of releases every year. Um, and so the Minnesota Orchestra has commissioned Judd's music. We've, we've played a bunch. I've played a bunch of his chamber music. I just played some this past weekend, actually. Um, and this is a piece that he wrote for solo viola and six other backing violas on a recorded track. Uh, it was originally written to be played by the great violist Nadia Sirota, um, and it was part of an art installation at an Arizona art museum. Uh, and so the, originally those six backing tracks would have been played from six different speakers all over a gallery. Um, I have 
mix them down to a single track for radio. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's basically a solo viola work, and the accompaniment is six backing violas, and it's called "In Teaching Others, We Teach Ourselves." Thank you. 